Well, good morning again. As I said at the beginning of our service, we are in a brand new series called Apps for Life, in which we're going to be taking a closer look at the technology that we use, both how it influences us, but also how it's a reflection of us, how it reflects who we are and what we value. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to be kind of kicking off the series, but I think it's only right that before we get into what God's Word has to say, before we even address this topic, that we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that He has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have brought us here together, that you have set aside this time and this space to meet with us, to teach us, to help us understand what it means to walk with you in faith. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remove any barriers that would keep us from hearing the word that you have to speak to us this morning, that we would have open hearts and minds to receive your message. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said, we live in a uh, technologically saturated culture. In fact, if you talk to many specialists, people who work in Silicon Valley, what they will tell you is that the rate of change when it comes to technology is accelerating so rapidly that we as a society aren't even able to keep up with it all. I mean, when you stop and you consider just our mobile devices for a moment, we realize that there's more technology that, uh, that we carry around in our pocket than there was present on the Apollo lander. I mean, that's really quite amazing. We've come so far as a society. And I want us to take a moment just to think about smart devices for a second, kind of your smartphone, your personal phone. A couple statistics that highlight just how saturated we are. First statistic is this. One billion people worldwide owns a smartphone. One billion people. And we check our phones an average of 150 times a day. That's once every six and a half minutes. So when you all look down to your laps in about six minutes of this message, I'll know exactly what's going on. Now, there are 2.2 million apps for iPhone. There are 2.8 million apps for Android. And I want you to know, as Android users, those are your only bragging rights. Because I'm pretty convinced that even those 2.6, uh, those, those 0.6 other apps that you have, they probably don't even work that well. <laughs> Just revealing a little bit about my bias, okay? But this is how saturated we are as a culture. And there's an entire industry that actually goes into getting us to use our technology more. That there are people whose jobs it is to design apps and to design programs that, that keep us on our devices more and more. In fact, I was recently listening to a talk by a former uh, program developer for Google. His name was Tristan Harris. And he, he shared a little statistic that really jumped out at me. He said that when, uh, when you think about it, that the slot machine industry in casinos makes more money than baseball, movies, and game parks combined. That slot machines make more money than movies, baseball, and game parks combined each year. But what he went on to share is he, is he said that um, casino owners noticed something drastic changed when they went from kind of the manual slot machines with the levers and switched over to digital slot machines. Now, 
they, were, they noticed that people just weren't going to the slot machines very often, that they weren't playing the games anymore. Now, nothing had really changed. I mean, you still had the same odds. I mean, the graphics still looked at very similar to what the manual slot machine was like. And so they were wondering, well, why? Why is it that people aren't playing these games anymore? And as they dug down and they did their research, what they found was that with the old slot machines, there was a lag time. There was a lag time between when you pulled the lever and when the wheels stopped spinning. And they realized that people weren't so much addicted to winning the game. What they were addicted to was the high that came in that lag time. That between the moment they pulled the lever and the wheel stopped spinning, their body was giving them an adrenaline rush. And it was a rush that they got addicted to, which is why they would pull that slot machine lever again and again and again. So casino owners went back to the digital slot machines and they reverse engineered them. They went backwards a little bit. They said, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to create the perfect delay. The perfect delay between the time you press that button and when you see your results. The perfect delay to give you the perfect high so that you will play again. And the reason that Harris shares this story is he says says it is because his job as a developer was to leverage that psychology when it came to creating mobile apps for your phone. He used the example of Twitter. He said that, you know, Twitter, when they designed their app, they created a lag time between the time when you open the Twitter app and when it shows you if you have messages or not. The perfect lag time between when you open Twitter and when you actually see that magic number right above the bell to tell you whether or not you have messages waiting. They did this so that you would log in and check your Twitter feed over and over and over again, 150 times a day, every six and a half minutes. Basically, what Tristan Harris was saying is that his job was to turn your phone into a slot machine. Designed to hook you, to draw you in so that you would be using it over and over and over again. This isn't just Twitter. This is Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, even your email programs. And this is why we're doing this series. This is why we have to talk about it. Because we need to talk about a little bit about the technology that we use, how it's shaping our lives, and what it says about us. Because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 16 says this. He says, Think carefully then about how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. See, what he's saying is he's saying that in every age, there is a battle going on, a battle for our attention, a battle for our hearts and for our minds. And so our job as followers of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, is to be wise about how we live. And that includes the technology that we use. Because the technology we use can be used for great purposes. It can be used for wonderful ends. But it can also be something that twists us, that keeps us distracted, and that throws us off from the path that God has called us to walk. And so we want to be wise in how we use the technology that we carry around with us every single day. And that's why during this series, we're going to be looking at several popular apps. Apps that many people have on their phones, apps that they often use. And we're going to be asking this question, what does this app say about who we are and what we value? 
What does this app say about who we are and what we value? And so to kick it off, we're going to look at an app that almost everybody who has a smartphone has. It's the camera app. Now, digital cameras have, for all intents and purposes, replaced film cameras. I mean, when digital cameras were, were uh, created and released, they, they allow us to take pictures instantaneously, to save them instantaneously, to print them off very quickly. We don't have to mess with film. We don't have to take the film to a Walgreens and have them develop the film. We've got all the technology we, read, we need instantaneously to take the pictures we want. But then what's really interesting is that in two, the year 2000, the first camera phone was developed. And what that meant is that anytime you took your cell phone with you, you now had the ability to take pictures as well and to save them, to have them on hand. But then in the year 2003, Sony did something revolutionary which changed the game forever. When they released their Ericsson Z1010, they added a modification to the phone that forever changed how we take pictures. Do you know what it is? Right, it's right there. You guys got it. It's the front-facing camera. See, this allowed you not simply to take pictures of the things that you were seeing. It, for the first time, allowed the user to take a picture of themselves. And two years later, in the year 2005, the term selfie entered the English language. It's a little definition of what a selfie is. A selfie is a photograph that one has taken of oneself Typically one taken with a smartphone or webcam and then shared via social media. And just last year, in 2016, Google shared this statistic. They said that there were 24 billion selfies uploaded to their servers in a single year. Now, if a billion people worldwide have smartphones, that lets you know just how many selfies we each individually are taking, if we were to average it out across everyone. 24 billion selfies in a single year. And I think that that's something that we need to talk about this morning. We need to talk about how is it that these camera phones and this selfie culture are influencing us? What are they basically doing uh, to the way that we go about our daily lives? Because the reality is, is this, this selfie culture really isn't anything new. While the technology may have changed, I would argue that we've been having a problem with selfies for a very, very long time. And here's what I mean. Several years ago, I had the privilege of visiting France and getting to go to Versailles, Louis XIV's huge palace that he built for himself. And as you go through Versailles, you eventually come to the royal apartments. And as you're walking through Louis XIV's royal apartments, you see that the walls are plastered with things like this. Now, what are these? They're selfies. They're very expensive selfies. But they're selfies. These portraits and these statues and these sculptures, these are all of Louis XIV. Him depicted as a great warrior. Him depicted as a great dancer. Him depicted as a Greek hero. Over and over again, every single room, multiple, multiple portraits and sculptures of himself. They're selfies. And if you really think about it, for as long as human beings have been making art, we have been drawing, painting, sculpting, and carving ourselves. It's not a new issue. The only thing that's different about it nowadays is that everybody can do it. It's not just for rich people anymore. Anybody who's got access to a camera phone can go ahead and post their self-portrait, can share on their newsfeed their self-sculpture. 
We do it 24-7 all the time, but it's not a new problem. It's a problem that's far older than the development of the camera phone. It's far older than Versailles and Louis XIV. It's a problem that goes all the way back to our very, very beginning. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, which we read earlier in our service. And I want to talk about that passage for just a moment. You see, before we get to Genesis 3, we need just to recap the story. The story begins in this way. God made all things and he made the whole world and the whole universe perfectly. That actually when God gets to the end of his created order, he looks at all that he made and he said, it is very good. But more than that, he made human beings in his image. We learn that in Genesis chapter 1. We were made perfectly, made in his image. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get this beautiful picture of the first man and the first woman living in harmony with God and with each other in the beautiful world that God has made. There's no need to show off their self-portraits. There's no need for one-upmanship and who gets more likes because they just knew that they were made perfect and they loved each other and they loved God and everything was fine. But then we get to Genesis 3, and there's a problem. Here's what it says. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent insinuates something. He insinuates that they're missing out, that they are somehow not as perfect as they thought, that there's something deficient in how they were made, that God is withholding something. And that little seed of doubt begins to grow. And then we read that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, this is the first act of human self-centeredness, first act of human pride and vanity. It took place when we began to doubt what God said about us, that we were made in his image, that we were perfect, and we decided that we're going to make up for the the mistake that God apparently made, that we were going to put ourselves in the driver's seat, and we were going to decide what was best for us. And so they reached out and they took the fruit. They didn't ask God, why is this fruit dangerous for us? Why is it bad for us to intimately know good and evil? They just decided we know what's best, and we're going to take matters into our own hands. And they seized the fruit, and they ate, and their eyes were opened, and it threw everything else off kilter. And I'm convinced that had they had the technology in that moment, Adam and Eve would have taken a selfie. They would have pulled out that smartphone. They would have taken that picture of themselves and the snake. They might have even posted it to Twitter. Hashtag best fruit ever at Naked in Eden. (laughs) They see this is not a new problem. 
It goes all the way back to our very beginnings. Self-centeredness, a selfie culture, was something that was there right at the start, something that we brought into the world. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve's problem. It's something we see over and over and over again, whether you read through Scripture or you just take a look at human history. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is, comes to us from Genesis chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. See, God had told the human race to, to fill the whole earth, to go out and to spread beauty and art and culture and civilization. And yet they decide, once again, in Genesis 11, that we know better than God, so we're going to stick together. And so they all got together in one place and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. You see, the fact that God calls us his creation, that the, the fact that God made us in his image wasn't enough. We needed to make our own tower. We need to make a name for ourselves. It once again is this expression of human vanity and self-centeredness. And I would argue that this same drive to make a name for ourselves is exactly what lies beneath our whole selfie culture. The selfie culture says the fact that I'm made in God's image isn't enough. I need more. I need greater attention. I need the affirmation and the approval of other people. This is part of the reason why we don't just take a selfie and post it. We obsess over the filters that we're using. Because we got to decide, is this the right picture? Is this the best picture? How can I open the edit settings and just tweak it a little bit? How can I suck in the gut? How can I get the right color scheme? See, we need to realize that anytime we go on a person's, a person's social media feed, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, what we are seeing is a carefully curated museum. It is a carefully curated museum of them presenting to the world only what they desire us to see. It's perfectly designed to stroke our vanity. And this is also part of the reason why we obsess over those likes, right? Because we don't just post a picture. You don't post a picture and then leave the Facebook app. You post a picture and then six and a half minutes later, you check back in to see, did anybody like it? How many likes did I get? Has anyone shared it? Who commented? Over and over again, we go back to our phones. How many likes now? How many likes now? How many? You were just there six and a half minutes ago. Why? Well, it's because it's the slot machine. It's the slot machine that's designed to give us the high to feed into our vanity and to feed into our ego. Our selfie culture is simply a reflection of our self-centered drive. It's simply the latest, most technologically advanced version of it. But it's wreaking havoc on our relationships with one another. Right? It's destroying human relationships. This is actually a, a painting by the, uh, the guerrilla street artist Banksy. It's called Cell Phone Love. And what he's highlighting here, and I think he's right, is that oftentimes when it, we are so self-centered that oftentimes we only really care about people when they come into our gravitational sphere of orbit. The sphere of orbit that centers around ourselves and our own hearts. And that we only love other people in so much as they are giving us the attention and the affection that we desire. And then the moment those relationships no longer meet our needs in just the right way, well, we move on. Unfriended. I've stopped following you. 
We find different ways of expressing and justifying the reasons why we let relationships go because, quite honestly, they're just not meeting our needs. We are literally humanity turned inward on itself. And so the question is, how do we break this cycle? If this is something that has been going on since our very creation, what will set us free? Well, many solutions have been suggested. And one of the solutions that's kind of popular right now is an idea that comes from the Dalai Lama. This is what he has to say about being self-centered. He says, It is important that when pursuing our own self-interest, we should be wise selfish, not foolish selfish. Being foolish selfish means pursuing our own interests in a narrow, short-sighted way. But being wise selfish means taking a broader view and recognizing that our own long-term individual interest lies in the welfare of everyone. Being wise selfish means being compassionate. Now, on the surface, this actually sounds like a really good idea. Because what it says is it says, look, we're never going to get over our own self-centered inclinations. But, but if we realize that ultimately we're all in the same boat together, that changes the dynamic. That if I realize that my self-interest is ultimately tied up in your self-interest, then maybe we can actually work together to bring about the good that our world so desperately needs. And on the surface, that sounds like it makes sense. It basically says that even though we can't get rid of our self-interest, maybe we can hotwire it. Maybe we can carjack it. Maybe we can, maybe we can rewire it in just the right way so that it does what we want it to do, that we actually end up better serving one another. But if you really stop and think about it for a moment, that thinking very quickly breaks down. Because what happens when the needs of the community are not the same as my needs? What happens if everybody uh, of what's in the best interest of everybody else is no longer in my best interests? Well, then we kick the community to the curb and we go it alone. See, it all goes back inwards. It all turns back inwards. We need something more radical than what's being suggested here. We need a better definition of compassion. Because compassion isn't simply realizing that my self-interest and your self-interest are tied up in one another. That's actually not the definition of the word compassion. Compassion means that I literally feel what you feel and it has nothing to do with me. The true compassion means that I have a heart that's so in tune with yours that I just kind of fade into the background. And honestly, if it's up to us to, to, to do that, I don't know how that's going to take place. Because we need something that comes from outside of us, but then leads to internal transformation. We need something that comes from outside of us, but then leads to internal transformation. We need a better, more radical definition of both transformation and of compassion. And the writers of Scripture say that the place that we look to know where that transformation comes is we look to the life of Jesus Christ. Because look, even the Dalai Lama likes to take a selfie from time to time. Even the Dalai Lama likes to take a selfie from time to time, so we got to look to Jesus. And here's what Paul writes in the book of Philippians. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. 
He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says that we have to look to Christ in order to overcome selfishness and self-centeredness, to overcome vanity and pride. Because what is that mind of Christ? This is what he writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, what Paul says is he says, God entered into our world to become one of us. He did this not out of selfish interest, but in order to save us from ourselves, to break the cycle of self-centeredness. He did this by letting go of his glory, by becoming human, by walking with us, dying for us, and rising again to set us free from our self-centered sin. In fact, Paul goes on later in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15 to say it this way. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, what Paul is trying to get across is this. When we look at the life of Jesus, it breaks the cycle of self-centeredness because when we look at Christ, we see that our value is not found in the number of followers that we have on social media, that our value is not found in how many likes we get, that our value is actually not ultimately determined by anyone else except for the God who made us, who loves us, who saves us, and who draws us into a relationship with himself both now and into eternity. He says it is all broken when we realize that we have value in the eyes of Jesus. And when I realize that I have value in the eyes of Jesus, I don't need to keep going back to my news feed. I don't need to keep going back and seeing how many likes I have because I realize that I am loved by the only one who really matters. That I am loved by Christ. It changes this self-centered dynamic, because I realize that my value is a gift that's already given. It has nothing to do with the filters I use and how I look and what I'm doing. It's a gift freely given by the God who has loved me from beginning to end. But more than this, it then transforms how I enter into relationship with other people, because notice what Paul said. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, other translations simply say, well, have the same mind as Jesus Christ. But that's not actually the best translation. The best translation is what we read just a moment ago. It's, have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours. See, what he's saying is that when we have a relationship with God, God sets up his dwelling place in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit is within us, helping us to now not only see ourselves, but to see our world with God's eyes. That we realize that just as we are loved extravagantly in God, so God loves extravagantly everyone around us, and that changes how we interact with each other. That I realize that I am loved, and so are you. And so are the people beyond these four walls, the people in my neighborhood, the people at my workplace, are deeply loved by the God 
who came, died, and rose again to save us from our sin, to break the cycle of self-centeredness. And I think when we start to realize that and we realize that God's Spirit is at work within us, it then changes our selfie culture. We start to ask ourselves the question, why am I even posting that? Who is this really for? And I think it does change how we use our technology as well. It's not about one-upmanship and whether or not my pictures look better than all the other people on my feeds. I actually start using the camera on the other side of my phone. I actually start turning outwards and asking myself, well, what's in the best interest of the people that God has placed all around me? It moves me into new relationships, relationships of compassion and service, fueled and energized by the Spirit of God who dwells within our hearts and within our minds. I love how C.S. Lewis uh, puts this. He's a famous writer. He says it this way. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that only comes when we realize our value is a gift given And furthermore, God's Spirit is within us, helping us to see that His love is for all. And the good news is one day, one day we're going to be in that eternal relationship with God. We're going to see Him face to face. But we experience and live that life now, in this moment, realizing that all the love and attention that we need is freely given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that enables us to, yes, use our technology wisely, but also to engage with our world deeply, compassionately, and relationally. It realigns our priorities as our hearts are once more aligned with the God who did not consider his own glory something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross to save you and to save me. We say thanks to Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and who calls us to go and give his love to a world that's just being strangled by our selfie culture. May we be ambassadors of love, grace, and compassion to a world that desperately needs it. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who does indeed set us free, that we say, Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ, or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.